So growing up for me, when I was little, I was a, a klutz. Like I would always put myself in situations where I'd do stuff that would cause embarrassment, shame. I'd trip over everything. I'd knock things over. I'd spill like water glass at the table pretty, pretty consistently. In fact, it got, it got so consistent that anytime my extended family came together, so aunts, uncles, cousins, there'd be wagers, like there'd be bets on not only if I would spill something or not, but like how frequent, how soon it would happen, and, and like money would be exchanged over this, this type of stuff. So it became a game in my family. How can we kind of egg this on? How can we put Josh in situations where he's going to embarrass himself? And it worked. There was one birthday that we went to the zoo. I was probably, I don't even know, somewhere eight or nine. We went to the zoo for my birthday. And of course, my, my aunt and uncle were involved. My cousins are there. So the game begins. And it seems like I, I would think that birthdays should be off limits to this kind of stuff, but it wasn't. And so I kind of like dodged and avoided most, most of the landmines that were presented. But as we're leaving the zoo, we're walking out the zoo and they had one of those things where like you can stamp your hand and if you wanna come back into the zoo later that day, just have like a stamp that you show them. And so we're walking through the, the gate to go to the car and all of a sudden I, I feel a stamp just poof, straight onto my forehead. This rubber, big rubber stamp hits me straight in the forehead and my uncle is the one that got me. And I'm kind of at this age where I'm starting to care what people think about me. I'm starting to care how people perceive me, family and just strangers in general. And so I'm just immediately embarrassed, immediately filled with shame. Like what are these random people gonna think when they just see this kid with this huge ape stamp like on his forehead? Like what are they, what are they gonna think? And so I was wearing a hoodie luckily. And so I, I throw my, like, my little hoodie on and I start just walking to the car, just filled with, with guilt and shame and embarrassment and just like fear about what other people are gonna think. And next thing I know, I just hear Josh. And I look up and boo, slam into a telephone booth. Like I wish I was making this up, just hit a telephone booth, square on, Fall, fall to the ground, and now the embarrassment is just growing and growing. This is kind of fitting the narrative more and more. And within minutes, this, this huge bump is growing on my forehead. And if, if you're thinking to yourself, like you were, you were walking, how could you get a huge bump? Next time you see me on campus or anywhere, just watch me walk, just observe. I'm a very fast walker. I had this little bounce to my step. If you hadn't noticed it before, you'll never not notice it again. I kind of hop when I step. And so like, I can get going quickly, just walking. And so I had enough force to hit this, this telephone booth and cause this, this huge bump to grow. And, and they, of course, the embarrassment, the shame, and the pain just, just grew. And that's a, that's a silly story to prove this point that if I would have just looked up, it's a simple point. If I would have just looked up instead of looking down at myself or at the ground, if I would have just raised my eyes a little bit, 
It would have saved me from, from a lot more embarrassment, a lot more shame, and a lot more pain. And in a way, Paul, as he's wrapping up Romans 8, which I've argued and will continue to argue, is the greatest chapter in the Bible. He's gonna encourage us to do the same. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Romans 8, starting in verse 31, and we'll be going all the way through the end. We're finishing Romans 8 tonight, and so we'll be in Romans 8, 31 to 39. And here's, here's how it starts, if you have your Bibles. It says, what then shall we say to these things? Pause. These things that he's talking about, some argue he's talking about the entire eight chapters that have led up to that. But what he's at least talking about is what Jacob talked about last week, if you were here for that. Romans 8:28, you can see it right now. It says that for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, God works everything for good. He drops this bomb on us that everything will work together for your good if you, if you are called by God, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian. And so Paul's continuing on that thought. He says, in light of this, or he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we're gonna spend the rest of tonight just thinking about this one idea that if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you're anything like me, the first thing you think about when you see this is maybe some doubts come into your mind. You ask the question, is God even for us? That first part, if God is for us, some arguments come to your mind about, well, how, how can I trust that God is for me? How do I know for sure that God is for us? You maybe look at your present circumstances right now. Does God really care? Does God really care about the things that I need? Is God really there for me? Is he really for me? Some of you might have some, some really crazy family situations going on right now. And as the holidays approach, you know that those family situations just escalate and escalate and escalate. And you ask, is God really for me? Does he really care? Maybe someone in your family is, is suffering. There's a sickness, a disease, maybe it's cancer. And you see this really present need and present, present thing in your, in your life right now, in your immediate family, you're just, how can I trust that God's there? How can I trust that he'll provide? How can I trust that he, will, he really cares about me? Is God actually for me? Or maybe it's something going on just in your, your own life. Maybe there's some mental health struggles that you've been dealing with for years and years and years and years and you want so desperately just to be free from them. And you're asking the question, how can I trust that God is actually for me? How can I know that? Or some of you that are more future thinkers, not really the day-to-day -day people, but you're living kind of a year to five years in the future, you're thinking the same question, but you're, 
you're thinking it about the future. How can I trust that God's gonna provide for me then? I've always wanted this relationship. I've prayed about this relationship. I desire this relationship. And I got nothing. I'm single. Like, how, do I, how can I trust God? Does he really care about me? Does he really, do my needs really even matter to him? Or there's this position that I want. There's this, there's this role in my fraternity or sorority or, or club or there's this grad school that I'm dying to get into, this internship that I, that I have to have this summer, this job that I've been looking for. How can I trust that God's for me? How can I trust that he has my best interest in mind? Is God actually for me? And if you can't think of something in your life right now, think about this. What are the things in your life that you wanna control the most? What are the things in your life that are constantly going through your head? What are the things that you think about, talk about, What are you trying to control? When you think about those things, more than likely, those are the things that you're trusting God with the least. And if there are things in your life that manifest anxiety, worry, fear, again, those are just symptoms that maybe, just maybe, we don't really trust that God is for us. And so we try and control anything that we can. I have some really good friends that are very active in the, in the foster care system here in Fayetteville, and they have, they have kids that kind of come, come in and out of their house in different seasons, and it's been cool to just watch them get to steward these relationships and anyone that goes through foster care, anyone that, that has been trained knows that they tell you time and time again that when new kids come to your house, do not be surprised when you go in their room one day and you find like loads and loads of food and toiletries and different like things that they would need stashed away somewhere, snacks, toothpaste, toilet paper, like just hidden somewhere in their backpack, under their bed, in their closet. They said it's so common for that to happen because most of these kids, their whole life, they've been conditioned to think that no one's gonna provide for me. No one cares about me. No one has my best interest in mind. And so anything that I need or want, I've got to control. I've got to take it on my own. And so even if they go to a family that loves them and gives them everything they want, they'll try and control it. And I'm afraid that we do this as well spiritually. We might pray and ask God for certain things, but then right away try and control the circumstance, try and control the outcome. And Paul has this in mind. The very next verse, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The very next thing he says is, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
he's actually making a very profound philosophical argument here. This argument is something that's called from the stronger to the weaker or from the greater to the lesser. And what this argument is, is he's trying to say, if God would give up his most precious thing, if God would give you the most valuable thing in the world to him, his own son, how will he not also give you everything else that you need? If your neighbor gives you a kidney in a time when you're in desperate need, you can trust that when you go to that neighbor for some salt and pepper that you don't have anymore, you can trust that that neighbor, if they've got it, they're gonna give it to you. This is the type of argument that he's making. If God was willing, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, but, but graciously, if God would graciously give up Jesus, would graciously send him to the cross, he cares, he loves you, he cares about even the small things. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying those things that you wanna control so badly, those things that cause fear and anxiety and worry, when we try and look at ourselves and we're looking at, okay, what can I do? How can I fix this? What's gonna happen? What's the future like? He's just trying to lift our eyes up and remind us, hey, it's not in your control. He's got it. He cares about you. He gave up his most precious thing. And so some of you, some of you might trust God's provision. That's not where you doubt. You trust God's provision, but you doubt God's grace. You trust God's provision, but you doubt his forgiveness. And so when you're thinking about your present circumstance and maybe even your future circumstance, you're like, okay, God, like, I know you got this. Like, I'm not sure how it's gonna work out, but I trust you, you're in control, you got this. But then when you think about things that you've done, when you think about the baggage that you're bringing in, you think about things like, have I gone too far? Have I out God's grace? If only he knew the extent of this situation. If only he knew this. If he knew exactly what's going through my mind or exactly what I did or, or these situations, there's no way he'd care for me anymore. He would be filled with disappointment. He, he'd, he'd want to push me away. That love and that care that they talk about, that's great for them, but if he knew what I did, there's no way he'd still care about me. And so what is that for you? What is that, that, that thing that you think about that fills you with guilt and shame? Maybe it's an abortion. Maybe it's acting out on same-sex desires. Maybe it's that party season that you had freshman year. Maybe you're in that right now. Or maybe it's just this hamster wheel cycle of, 
I, I can never do enough. I'm always messing up. I keep going back to the same patterns and habits and routines time and time and time again. If I were God, I would hate me. What are the things in your life that you, that you think about and you're just filled with shame? You think there's no way God, there's no way God could care about me if he knew the extent of this. When I was dating Lauren, my wife, there was a time when I was like, it was the summer, I was like, I'm gonna marry this girl. Like, it's like she's the one, I wanna spend the rest of my life with her. And so I started kind of like, okay, brainstorming, okay, how am, I, how am I gonna talk to her dad? How am I gonna buy a ring? How am I gonna plan this like proposal and party and all these things? And, and before I got there, I realized that there was a conversation that I needed to have with her. And it was a conversation that I had been pushing off. Every time that we would talk about serious things, I would, I'd feel like, man, I really need to talk to her about this. There's things in my past that she has to know about if we're gonna do this thing. And I kept pushing them off out of, out of shame and out of fear. And then as it's like, man, I wanna marry her. Like, like she's the one. It's like, I have to have, I have, to have this conversation. And so I, I sit her down and I, I explained to her just the horrendous sexual past that I was bringing into this relationship. I walked her through, I explained to her that I had lost my virginity in high school. And you gotta know, Lauren is, is someone that did everything right. Like every step of the way, it's like, she just nailed it. She was following Jesus when she was little. Like she was just like, did everything right. And I'm coming in with all this baggage. Telling me about how I lost my virginity. Talking about how every relationship up until that point was just left in shambles because of, of sexual desires in myself that I kept wanting to push boundaries farther and farther and farther and farther and farther that I was still in recovery for 10 years from a pornography addiction. And as I'm sitting there telling her all these things, all I could think about is, like, this is it. Like, it's over. There's no way. Once she knows all these things, once she has all this, all this history, once she knows the baggage that I'm bringing into this relationship, it's over. There's no way anybody could love me. There's no way, especially somebody like her would wanna be with somebody like me. There's no way. And I was expecting that that conversation would end with a breakup. And to be honest with you, if that did happen, it would probably be valid. It'd probably be justified. And as I'm sitting in this silence waiting for her to respond, her response was filled with so much love and compassion and grace. It was, it, was, it was forgiveness like I'd never seen before, that somebody could know the worst parts of me, like the worst, and yet still love me. There was this freedom in that that I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to be ashamed. I didn't have to bury that. I didn't have to ignore that. And this is the same type of love that God is wanting to offer to us. Tim Keller says it better than I could. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting, 
but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. And so whatever that thing is that you're ashamed of, whatever that thing is that you're saying, if God knew this, there's no way he'd still care about me. That's just another example of us trying to look at ourselves and justify ourselves and, and make ourselves the center of our attention instead of looking at God. Here's what, <clears throat> here's what Paul says. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see the argument he's trying to make? How can God love me if, if I've done these things? How can God love me if I've had an abortion? How can God love me if I'm still addicted to pornography? How can God love me if I live this double life? How can God still love me? He says, who's, who's gonna judge you? Isn't God the ultimate judge? Isn't he the one that judge, judges? And who's gonna condemn you? Remember back to verse one in Romans eight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, why are you looking at yourself to be justified? Why are you looking at yourself to be made righteous? Why are you looking at yourself to find this sort of freedom? He says, wasn't Jesus the one who died? Wasn't Jesus the one who was raised from the dead? Wasn't he the one that ascended into heaven? Isn't he right now at this moment interceding for us? That means even today when we mess up, and some of you might have come in here today with things that you regret. Even today, for those who are in Christ, he's interceding. He's going before God saying, that's been forgiven. That's been paid for. They're clean. He's clean. She's clean. They're forgiven. I've paid for that. If heaven was for perfect people, nobody would be there. Do you want to know some of the people that you'll see in heaven someday? people who committed rape and sexual abuse. I'll tell you one. His name is King David. There'll be murderers in heaven. I'll give you another. His name is Moses. There'll be prostitutes in heaven. One's name is Rahab. All throughout the Bible, all throughout church history is filled with sinful people that stand under the grace of God, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus paid for them. And so should we continue in sin? Look a couple chapters back at Romans 6. Should we continue in sin if grace just keeps abounding? Paul says, by no means. But if you really understood grace, 
it would start to change you from the inside out. And so instead of looking at ourselves and being filled with, with guilt and shame, Paul's telling us to look up. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who justifies. You're here free and forgiven because of him. Look at him. And so if this really is true, if God really is for us, Paul asks the last question. Paul himself in this sentence asks the last question. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He says like this, he says, if God is for us, then what could separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from Christ's love? And he gives some examples. In the next verse he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul raises his own argument. Who can be against us? If what we've said is true, that God really is for us, that he really does care about us, not only our past, but our present and our future, then who can be against us? When things are really hard, in times of, of hunger and in need and in lack, when we don't have the things that we want or the things that we need, Paul says, can these things be against us? When there's people persecuting us, whether that's physical persecution, relational persecution, social persecution, whatever it is, is that a sign that, God, that God's not for us? That the, can these people actually be against us? Can these people actually separate us from, from this love, from Jesus? Or how about this one? Can death, will death, that, that, that moment that we breathe our very last breath, will that ultimately separate us from Jesus's love? And here's his answer. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Emphatically, repeatedly, he says, no, nothing. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Can can hunger separate you from the love of God? No. Can need, times of need, times of lack? No. Can suffering, persecution, tribulation, when everything around you feels like it's going the opposite of how you want it to go, is that a sign that you've been separated from the love of God? He says, no. What about that day that we breathe our last breath? Will that be the thing that finally separates us? He says, no, nothing. And don't miss that first line. He says, not only can these things not separate you, but he says, we are more than conquerors of all these things. He's just using a superlative there. He's just saying, we're super conquerors. We are more than conquerors of all these things. 
not only will they not be able to separate us, but God will actually flip them and he'll use them for our good, as we talked about last week. And so I've been reading this book the last couple of weeks. I just finished it this week. If you haven't read it before, I highly recommend. It's called Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's incredible. It's one of, one of the best books I've ever read. And it's all about Satan's strategy to tempt Christians. And it's all about how, from, from the enemy's perspective, from Satan's perspective, how is he gonna tempt Christians? And reading this passage, I feel bad for him. Reading this passage, we truly understood the weight and the gravity of what Paul is trying to tell us here. Satan should be afraid of us. What Paul is saying here when he's saying we are more than conquerors is he's saying, can, can hunger separate me from the love of, love of God? He's saying, no. Not only can it not separate you, but he's gonna use it for good. Satan fills you with, gives you a time of, of drought or dryness or hunger, takes away these things that you love. Paul's saying, in lack and in plenty, I've, I've learned contentment. Hunger just reminds me of what's important. Hunger just reminds me that I need Jesus. Hunger just makes me look to this day where there'll be no more hunger. He uses it for our good. What about suffering? What about tribulation? What about persecution? He's saying God's gonna, God's gonna use it. He says rejoice in suffering. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for the reward is great in heaven. He says God uses suffering for our good. That suffering produces steadfastness. Suffering produces character. Character produces hope and our hope will never be put to shame. Suffering can be used for our good. We're more than conquerors. When the enemy tries to, to fill you with fear about, about what's gonna happen when you die, about what those last breaths are gonna look like, we can stand with Paul and say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. If you want to kill me, go ahead. This life is a mist. This life is temporary. You kill me, I'll be with God in, in heaven for eternity. Death is just gain for Christians. So any attack, anything that Satan would try to tell you to push you off the path, to remind you to try and tell you that, that you are no longer with Christ, that God is no longer for you. All those things are a lie. He's just trying to tell you lies. That's his scheme. You know the worst part about that story that I told in the beginning? My uncle who hit me in the forehead with that thing, he never stamped the thing in the ink there was no ink, he was just doing it to mess with me. There was never anything actually on my forehead. But I let, 
I let that lie fill me with guilt and shame and embarrassment. And if we're being honest, a lot of us in this room have done the same thing. That we've been believing lies. We've been looking at ourselves, and we've been filled with control, with anxiety, with fear, with guilt and shame. And all Paul wants you to do is to look up. Stop looking at yourself and to look up. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often just are filled with control and anxiety and fear because we're looking at the things in our own life that we can control and manipulate and the things that, that, that give us guilt and shame and we, we just confess those to you. We thank you that there's nothing that we could share with you, there's nothing that we could tell you that would make you love us any less. So we ask that you would remind us that we are fully known and fully loved by you. That you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. And so you're the one that we praise, you're the one that gets all the glory and you're the one that we sing to now. We pray this all in his name, amen.